0: I highly recommend looking at the kind of best in class players out in the market. If you can build a platform you can really extend the value of your product or service. So we really get by with help from our friends and our developers all different parts to make an event a big success. I'm a big believer in people. It's always around hiring the best and ensuring that you have the best with the company, that is always gonna lead you on that green path towards prosperity and growth. From GGV, this is Founder Real
1: Talk, where we get real about the challenges that founders and startup executives face and how they've grown from tough experiences. I'm your host, Glenn Solomon, managing partner at GGV Capital. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast Also, check out Founder Real Talk past episodes, including Stuart Butterfield from Slack, Nate Boczarzik from Airbnb, Mikkel Sfane from Zendesk, and Sarah Fryer from when she was CFO at Square. Without further ado, here's today's episode. I'm delighted to welcome Kevin Hartz to Founder Real Talk today. Kevin has had an incredible career as a founder and business builder. He co-founded Eventbrite, the born digital ticketing leader, in October 2005 with his wife, Julia Hartz, and he served as chairman and CEO through late 2016, before turning the CEO reins over to Julia, while remaining chairman. Eventbrite had a very successful IPO in September 2018, valuing the company at well north of $2 billion. Prior to building Eventbrite, Kevin co-founded Zoom, the money remittance business, in 2001, and he served as CEO until 2005. Zoom also had a successful IPO before being acquired in 2015 by PayPal for about a billion dollars. Kevin's been a very successful investor as well. Some of his most successful early-stage investments include Airbnb, Pinterest, Trulia, Skybox Imaging, and Newfront Insurance, which sounds like a really interesting company. And Kevin's previously served as a partner at Founders Fund. I'm really excited to have Kevin here with us today. He's been an incredible entrepreneur with so many incredible experiences, and we'll explore the Eventbrite journey today. Welcome, Kevin, to Founder Real Talk. Glenn, thank you so much. It's a delight to be here. Great. So, I wanted to start by asking about the spark for Eventbrite. 2005 was still relatively early in the evolution of the web, and it was really two years before the iPhone launched. So, what was your inspiration at that time? What gave you the conviction that you could build Eventbrite into something big?
0: If you go back to to that era, well, we look for platforms, and, and platforms excite us uh, in the sense that we look at how the world is changing and how is tech constantly rearranging. Uh, If you look back at, say, Microsoft in the 80s and 90s of building the Windows platform, it attracted many developers and many great companies were built. Or more recently, in, in the case of Apple and the iPhone launch, you saw a flurry of great companies emerge from that. Our thesis was simple. I had the good fortune to be at the front row and having a front row seat watching PayPal as an investor and advisor way back when get started and saw this uh, internet payments thing as a very exciting phenomenon. And our simple bet was that payments on the internet would grow and PayPal's initial market was really all in auctions and eBay. But we saw many other options. And so we actually worked with the PayPal team on Getting their first API out, and we started building applications towards that, and Eventbrite stemmed from that. And I would uh, say Zoom stemmed from that as well. The money remittance business. Hmm.
1: I definitely want to return to this concept of, of platform, but to dig in a little bit deeper on Eventbrite, would you say that the vision for Eventbrite that you had back then and where it is today are similar? Like, has, has the company, you know, over the
0: past decade plus, remained kind of what you thought it would be when you first started it? Maybe I'm uh, boring or so on and repeating the same message over and over but the original vision of Eventbrite was to get people out to have these live experiences to get out in the world. Uh, We spend so much time gaming or watching streaming video or in front of our screens or in our house. And the simple thesis is that there's a, a new content group or an emerging content mm-hmm. group and arguably a content group that's been around for, forever if you look at, back at the you know, the Roman or Greek play. And that was to gather people together to be entertained, to learn to physical fitness or otherwise. So we wanted to bring people together around the live experience was the simple thesis of the business many many lives have been touched in one way or another by
1: eventbrite but for those who are unfamiliar those listeners who are unfamiliar with with the business itself can you just walk us through you know how eventbrite is used by those who organize and offer live experiences and those those who appreciate them
0: yeah there are two sides to eventbrite one is in any kind of marketplace business, you have your supply side, and our supply side are the creators, and, and these are the the people that are hosting or organizing uh, these events, or merchants. And on the demand side, you have the attendees, the consumers that are attending these events. And we've really focused around the creator and the creator experience. You know, I would draw an analogy if you're familiar with Shopify, where it focuses around its Shopify merchants, which in turn sell to an end consumer. We focus around our creators, which in turn attract and serve their attendees. Got it. So now that
1: we've established who's on either side of this, the supply and the uh, demand side of the equation, you've talked about the importance of platforms, and it sounds like that's been something maybe you saw and learned with PayPal and have brought to all your other businesses. Talk to us about the benefits of a platform. If you you can really make a platform work, what are the benefits of that, and how have you seen
0: that manifest at Eventbrite? Well, we saw this platform, uh, and we looked at it as a platform because we looked out at traditional ticketing, and we try not to compare ourselves too much to traditional ticketing mm-hmm. because traditional ticketing is all monolithic. There are these closed systems, mm-hmm. and and instead, we look in, and I think every founder entrepreneur should, like, I highly recommend looking at the kind of best in class players out in the market. So, if you look at the Salesforce with App Exchange or the Apples in the Apple Store is if you can build a platform, you can really extend the value of your product or service. Mm-hmm. Just as the iPhone is much more powerful with so many different applications, or Salesforce is is so much broader with its third parties. We know we can't be everywhere. Once at, at Eventbrite, and we then built a service-oriented architecture. We built a platform that others could plug into and extend the the value of it. So we really by with help from our friends and our developers. We have thousands of developers that have come to the platform for email CRM, for on-site services, for all different parts to make an event a big success.
1: Got it. One of the challenges that people have when trying to build platforms is getting all the relevant actors to participate and get enough liquidity so that there's enough value for all those sides to, you know, to continue to participate. Are there things you did early on with Eventbrite with that in mind to try to make sure that there was enough value there for all constituents so that the platform could thrive?
0: That's a great question. I, I think at the core is that you you do need to have momentum. So on day 1, if you don't have the creators and the demand the attendees, it's it's harder to attract. So of course we spent a lot of time in a lot of different methods of growing the business. And we also, you know, we helped a lot of our early developers deeply integrate with it. And just continued persistence in, in time really has paid off in our case. And now we've certainly seen that course change in developers coming to us. Is
1: there anything that, you know, looking back now with the benefit of hindsight into the early days of Eventbrite that you wish you would maybe accelerated or reprioritized, done differently
0: that you think would have even allowed you to move quicker? I'm a big believer in, in people. You know, I think there's a lot of times when we will point to competitors or external or other factors that maybe execution wasn't at par or, or things didn't go right. And In reality, it's always the people. So I think it's, it's always around hiring the best and ensuring that you have the best uh, with the company that is always going to lead you on that green path towards prosperity and growth. Yeah, this this concept of hiring great great people to help
1: help you build your your company is something we've heard again and again on on Founder Real Talk. We had Elad Gill on the show not too long ago and, you know, his great book, uh, High Growth Handbook, we talked about a lot and there's lots of words of wisdom in the interviews he does in that book about bringing team members on and um, you know, Keith Raboy, I think in that book talks about the importance of, you know, using your network to find people, maybe even using search firms to find people. And that a good question to ask when you're trying to recruit somebody is if you're doing a reference on somebody, would be if, if we hired the person, would you come work with him or her as a way to kind of gauge how strongly somebody feels about somebody else when you're doing a reference. As you look back and, and the hires you made to help build your team... Anything you've you've taken from all those many hires, building the companies you've built about things you look for in people or things you try to avoid when you're when you're hiring uh, you know for for people who are, you want to move the needle in your companies?
0: Yeah, first of all, Elod's book uh, is a terrific one. I think I have the distinction of being the first to review it on Goodreads. And Keith is a master at hiring his words of wisdom there and he's somebody that I've had the opportunity to work closely with and and learn a lot about, you know, his extremely high standards for hiring great people. You know, my litmus test is in my learning. You know, it's for me the startup journey is all about learning and in each new part of the startup journey is a new chapter in a book and uh, you know, I want to grow and expand and so that only really happens when there are truly extraordinary people around you. And so in in building Eventbrite or anyone building a company, you have this opportunity to find extraordinary people and be surrounded by them and learn so much from that. And that's kind of my nirvana, is to learn new things every day, to have those you know aha moments. Mm-hmm. And so if that's not happening, that's really a, a chance to question yourself. And then there's always... It's often repeated, but it's such a truism. It's so hard when there's been a mishire or somebody's not quite the right fit, and being able to move that out and make hard choices is just part of the job. Yeah,
1: those are tough, tough
0: moments. They are, but they're absolutely necessary in building the business. If mm. if you don't make those tough choices, it comes at the sacrifice of a larger organization. Yep, fair enough.
1: Okay, so I want to return to Eventbrite and talk about the fact that. On Eventbrite, uh, on the platform, 95% of the creators actually sign themselves up to use it. So, you know, 19 out of every 20 creators is coming to you rather than you going to them, which is really remarkable. And I think back to other folks we've had on the show, Stuart Butterfield from Slack, they've also done an incredible job driving organic user adoption, getting new customers through kind of viral growth. Mitchell Hashimoto, who is the founder of HashiCorp, which has grown actually as as rapidly as Slack in its early years, using the power of open source to really get you know a community of of very loyal developers and DevOps folks using and then clamoring in their organizations for HashiCorp commercial products as well. So both those companies are examples. Uh, other examples of of kind of. Getting customers without having to knock on the customer's door and having salespeople kind of lead the way—that um, must be very powerful uh, for Eventbrite. Is that something you planned? How do you think that's happened? What's the magic alchemy there, and 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 what can other companies learn from that?
0: HashiCorp and, and Slack are, are phenomenal examples, and now it's just—I I, mean—it's almost a a must that you that this ease of use. I think of it as building a perpetual motion machine. How do you build something that you don't have to have all these people interacting or holding somebody's hand to build, you know, I think of like the olden days of the enterprise world where you had to have an army of consultants integrating and building and explaining and and that's given way to this kind of consumerization of all these different services. So the way that we began was as three founders and we worked for over two years just perfecting it. and it was it was a challenge for us of how do we build this perpetual motion machine, how do we build something that a creator discovers Eventbrite and publishes an event, sells tickets, sells out their event and we help him or her get the word out about their event and do that all without having an army of sales, marketing, customer service, and so on. And that really means that you have a very happy customer that has an intuitive feel. From a business standpoint, it just makes sense because it's highly efficient and that you have tailwinds to your business Mm -hmm. instead of headwinds. And so we're constantly working on the fit and finish Mm. of Eventbrite to make it just a smoother and smoother transition. And we get to stand on the shoulders of, and, and see all these other great companies like Slack and HashiCorp that use these great tailwinds to propel and expand their business. But the bar is really high when you're, you know, you're trying to get customers
1: without telling them they need to be customers, right? You, you have to really the fit and finish has to be, and the,
0: and the fit just has to be so so right. Well, that's where the you know kind of forced ingenuity comes into play. Yeah. I always see. Even and especially today, as the Eventbrite team, as a group of researchers, where you're constantly experimenting with better ways to serve the customer, Mm. but also better ways to, to find and retain customers. So, for example, we found early on that all the events being published on Eventbrite were great, authentic content and Google search and SEO was very powerful and still is very powerful for Eventbrite. We found almost by accident that we had somebody publish. uh, We had the ability to create a free ticket type, and we thought that was just going to be an add-on to Mm -hmm. a a paid ticket type. So you are going to sign up for a Python dev event, and there's a, a VIP free ticket for a speaker or otherwise. And what happened is people started publishing free events and effectively we had now a vast majority of our events are actually free but they're creating interesting content they're creating this flywheel they're getting consumers signed up so these interesting experiments turn out to be great now most experiments fail but you're constantly experimenting to see how can how can we extend the length and breadth and influence of eventbrite
1: yeah and i would guess that you know other monolithic companies in the ticketing space do not have research departments who are thinking about you know continually iterating and trying new things. So that, that must give you a leg up ultimately on the
0: competition. I would also say Eventbrite is targeted the, the, the vastly underserved, and that is this group of creators that wouldn't typically go out and mm-hmm. work with a, a large ticketing business. And where we've tried to look again is at the best in class, the Slacks, the Corps, and so on, That's where we gain our inspiration, rather than some old incumbents. Very cool. Very cool. So you started Eventbrite with your wife, Julia, and Renault Visage. We can't leave out our third co-founder. It's unfair. We always get portrayed as the husband and wife team, but then you know there's also Renault. Okay, Renault being the third wheel here. I want to talk. (laughs) I want want to. I want to
1: talk about what it's like to found a company with your spouse. You guys seem to complement each other really well. But that said. You know, the adage in venture capital is never back a wife and husband team. There's just too much too much risk there and the, the relationship is too complicated. But you guys have obviously made it work and, and really flourished. You know, Elad Gill says that founder has three jobs. One, raise money, two, set direction for your company, and three, don't get in a fight with your co-founder. When your co-founder is your spouse, that even amps up the the pressure on on that third element. So you've also been an investor and backed some amazing companies given your experience having co-founded a company with with your wife is there extra perspective that you bring when you when you are evaluating founding teams
0: and, and how they interact with each other well we just had extreme chemistry and you know i think that old adage is somewhat true just in general husband wife teams sibling teams but there's always exceptions those Gosh, those Collison brothers seem to be doing pretty They're well doing with that okay. stripe thing. Yep. And there's different approaches. We had some mentors early on. Michael and Sochi Birch have been phenomenal mentors to us and started some incredible companies. And we we, we took their strategy of divide and conquer. So Renaud, Julia, and I we never worked on. The same things. We had areas that we owned, and then areas we could advise or give opinions. But there was always a single decision maker, and it was very clear who that was. And then the second point was just around trust. Uh, there's mm. an immense amount of trust, and I think that you know I get a little choked up when I think about the journey that we've been through. You know, it's it's been an incredible experience of of going through this with Julia, and I'll say Renault too. But it's been an incredible experience of trust and a very meaningful experience to do this with my life partner in in this case. And I think the maybe the lesson for founders is, you know a lot is absolutely right. Don't fight with your business partner, but even more so, there just needs to be this this intense amount of trust mm. and and mutual respect and it's made it such a wonderful journey in that regards.
1: Yeah, that's really cool. And I think whether f- co-founders are romantically related or related in any other way, I think at the heart of successful partnership is that, is that respect and trust. So great to see that you guys have been able to maintain that. And, Until uh, she took my job. <laughs> and,
0: and I'm, I'm kidding. I, uh, I think she's doing very well. And in that that new role, I am so excited to see her grow. In and, and
1: it's been been amazing. Grow. In fact, speaking of that, you know, fast forward to today, you're you're processing nearly a hundred million paid tickets on a run rate basis, still growing revenue very very quickly. I think last time I checked, forty percent plus year over year, it's been remarkable and. Despite all that success, you're still this is a large industry that you play in, you're still kind of you're the upstart. And as you mentioned earlier, you're serving a community that's largely been underserved as as part of the industry. So you're you're growing the business. Reminds me in that way about of Square, who really found a whole set of merchants that weren't being served well by traditional players in the space. So they were able to expand the market and then move from there, which is very reminiscent of what we're seeing with Eventbrite. But I'm curious as a you know, a founder of the company and, and chairman, it sounds like you're very focused on Eventbrite and making sure Eventbrite and its model is working well and, and that you're continually tinkering and, and 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 trying to improve. But how much time do you spend, if any, on looking at what your competition is doing, your entrenched competition and you know, is it worth it for founders of, of upstarts in, in traditional businesses to get hyper focused on uh, the entrenched competition or, or should
0: you kind of just avoid thinking about it and focus on what you do best? Well, I'm a a competitive person, and Glenn, I know you're a competitive person. Um, I won't play tennis with you for that reason. (laughs) I used to throw my racket as a kid. I had a a really bad, or I do have a bad temper, but uh, you've you've
1: managed to control it well. I haven't seen you throw your racket. I've seen you play (laughs) tennis many times.
0: Yeah, so competition. I, I think that we tend to, you know, in general, we all tend to obsess too much on competition, and so we tend to overdo it, we tend to overemphasize competition when our focus really should be on our customers and on execution and on our own teams. Because again, I've rarely seen a business and a company lose to a competitor rather than mis-execute against a market opportunity. So my thoughts there are very much to... To continue to work with developing the team, work with developing your customers, work with expanding your markets. There's an infinite number of mm-hmm. directions to go, and obsessing on beating a customer is generally unhealthy. Now, there's certain exceptions. If uh, say Amazon comes into a space, you know, one should be calculating and thinking about how does one shift strategy or change. But in most cases, I, I find it, and especially in in hindsight, I, I find it a big Expansion of energy that was not needed to be wasted. We'll call that the Bezos caveat. The Bezos caveat, <laughs> yeah. exactly. But otherwise, focus on your business. That's 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 very
1: refreshing to hear. Another question I had for you about Eventbrite. You guys have, even as a private company, made made acquisitions along the way, and acquisitions can be really tough and defocusing. And no matter how hard you try to do diligence, a prospective acquisition, there's always things you find out post close. What are some of the rules of the road that you've developed when looking at acquisitions and and you know things you try to think about so that
0: you avoid mistakes that that others have clearly made? Our acquisitions, you know, the greatest successes have been around when there is a meeting of the minds with the founders in the teams that we're going to work together and we're going to build together. If somebody is looking for a quick out and quote-unquote liquidity or wants to get out of a market, you know those aren't ideal situations. We're looking for people that are passionate about the vision of the live experience of what we're building, the opportunity ahead. We've also primarily had acquisitions in two areas, talent acquisitions and acquisitions of other ticketing businesses to move us into other areas. We haven't, added non-core so everything has been focused around our core business versus say Google acquiring YouTube and going into the video space. Right. Acquiring companies in and around your business kind of reduces risk in that way. It helps us extend our footprint and you know more appropriately or more importantly it really is that talent yeah. is is finding this this founder mentality leadership we want to find These owners, people with the ownership mentality, and and that's a lot behind it. The old adage is, nobody's ever washed a rental car. Right. Uh, We we don't want to find people that are in this for building uh, rental cars for, for, for 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 fun, or we want to have people that are in it because they feel a sense of ownership in what they're doing and what they're building with their careers.
1: So this point is really interesting to me because you know, as I mentioned in the introduction, you you've also been a prolific and very successful investor as well. And it sounds like for you, making an acquisition sounds a lot like for me, making an investment. Like The people matter more than anything else. And investing behind a team that's fully committed and is in it for the long run is super, super important. I'm curious, what other benefits do you think you've had as a business builder that have come from being an investor and vice versa? It seems like you know you, you're one of the few people that we've spoken with at Founder Real Talk, who've really been successful in both arenas. It's not easy, but it seems like you've been able to take the best of both, and it's somewhat symbiotic.
0: A very, I, I think that term is right on. Very symbiotic, in in the sense that I felt I learned. You know, I've had great and continue to have great mentors on our board and advisors and so on, and and within our team. But I've learned so much from. Uh, in in the feeling I get of investing in a company, there's certainly a reward to seeing it grow, but learning from some of these great young operators and how they see the world in a different way—that is, you know, where we started this conversation. Is you know, I, I love to learn, I love to grow, like to hire people that are extraordinary and are on that trajectory. So. Investing for me has been a chance to, to learn myself. It's almost a selfish endeavor mm. and to see some of these great entrepreneurs go on to do big things is rewarding financially, but even more so, I just learned so much from them. Well, there have certainly been
1: financial returns and will be more for many of your investments, uh, Airbnb, Pinterest and, and the like, but it's very interesting to hear that, that you view it almost as a selfish endeavor because of what you get to learn. Tell us a little bit about
0: Newfront Insurance. That sounds like a—it's a newer investment for you and one you're really excited about. Uh, it is quite a bit, and that when I, I think of Spike and Gordon, the two founders, is they're young. Spike is just out of the Stanford Business School, and Gordon is out of MIT. He was—I uh, guess he had a perfect GPA, so he sounds like one of these slackers. But they've decided <laughs> to take on the commercial insurance industry, which is one of these few remaining kind of tired areas that just hasn't seen much innovation. So they're a tech-enabled insurance brokerage. And watching these two and and what they've done in terms of how they hire, how they've navigated this business just at an early stage is a pleasure and it kind of reinvigorates me and again, I gain insights. I hope I can help them really shortcut some of these lessons I've learned the hard way and the mistakes I've made along the way. But they're really a fantastic team and it'll be a, a fun company to watch and help grow over the years. I had the good fortune of meeting Spike. He
1: was employed for a period of time at Opendoor. Eric Wu, Opendoor's founder, was on the on the program, on the Founder Real Talk podcast several months back. And Spike seems just like an incredible incredible guy and uh, I can understand why you're so excited about a founding team
0: that he's a part of. I, th- I think Spike was attending grad school and working full-time at Opendoor at the time and I hope Eric and Keith and you, Glenn, can forgive Spike for not staying with with Opendoor but he had his calling to, to start New Front. Yeah, it sounds like a really exciting one. So,
1: Kevin, we're going to end with a, a speed round. So you're in the hot seat. I'm going to ask you a couple of questions and just say the first thing that comes into your mind. Tell us about your favorite book that you recommend to other entrepreneurs.
0: Business book, I recommend The Outsiders. And a fun read is American Kingpin, the story of the dread pirate Robert in the uh, Bitcoin early days. Yeah. So I have American
1: Kingpin on my Kindle, haven't read it yet. I did read Digital Gold by Nathan Popper, which talks about, among other things, the story of, of Silk Road. So uh, I feel like I've read part of this book already, but I am looking forward to, to reading American King. Penn. Yeah, the, the
0: examination of Dread Pirate Robert, where he starts out as this libertarian with this mindset of freedom and where he ends up is, is just fascinating, and it's all true. Crazy story. <laughs> and uh, Sometimes real life is crazier than fiction.
1: It is. Um, and the Outsider is another great book, one that I've I've recommended on my blog in the past, talking about you know great CEOs who focus on capital allocation and
0: sometimes have unconventional methods for building their businesses. Right, we tend to get into this kind of certain Silicon Valley playbook, and sort of break out of that. And to hear the read these inspiring stories was was phenomenal to me. Cool. What's something that you believe that isn't conventional that most others don't believe? I would say that. In most cases, capital can be more harmful than helpful. I think that founders have so many choices and so many directions that we're in a period of plentiful amounts of capital, which is in many cases really great, but how it gets allocated and how it sometimes ends up making us a little softer and not as sharp Mm. in in building our business in a very lean sense or, or building a very efficient business, it can be kind of a drug to lull us to sleep in a sense. Yeah, you know, I actually think a, uh,
1: a related insight there is that venture funds that are too easy to raise and get too large oftentimes underperform. And my experience has been the
0: funds that are the hardest to raise end up being the best performers. I like that. It reminds me of a kind of Boyle's Law where the gas fills the space it occupies. The yeah. larger the space, the more you spend, but not necessarily better returns. Okay, last
1: one. What's one thing you wish you could go back and tell yourself when you were
0: just getting started as a founder. I think it's been incredible. You and I have just seen the growth. I don't know if we could have ever imagined yeah. where things, you know, have emerged in this worldwide phenomenon of tech and how much the world has changed and how much of a, a reach this is. So, just you know, if you go back and look at Mary Meeker's 1996 <laughs> Internet report, we actually had a reading of that once. Just as kind of being a startup historian, it was interesting to see, but the heights that the digital age and the, and the impact that technology has had is, has been on inspiring So I look at that as in these new areas with new companies of the worldwide global markets we now play in and the opportunities still abound. And then secondly is just persistence. Uh, you know, is is one of Elad's three rules, don't run out of money, yeah. be persistent, stick in there and keep going. Well, we're going to keep
1: going with Founder Real Talk, but this has been an absolutely amazing episode, Kevin. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And I really appreciate all your insights. You've been listening to Founder Real Talk. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. If you have any questions you'd like us to ask our guests or founders you'd like to hear on this podcast, feel free to email us at founderrealtalk at ggvc.com. We're produced by Ted Carstensen and his team at Heavybit. We want to thank Ted for his support. Our theme song is by Grapes. GGV Capital is a global venture capital firm that invests in local founders. As a multi-stage, sector-focused firm, GGV focuses on seed to growth across consumer, social, and internet, enterprise cloud, and frontier tech. The firm was founded in 2000 and manages $6.2 billion in capital across 13 funds. Past and present portfolio companies include the likes of Affirm, Airbnb, Alibaba, Didi, Grab, HelloBike, HashiCorp, House, Keep, Namely, New, Opendoor, Peloton, Poshmark, Slack, Square, Wish, and many more. The firm has offices in Beijing, San Francisco, Shanghai, and Silicon Valley. Learn more at GGVC.com or follow us on Twitter at at ggvcapital or ggvcapital on WeChat.